0: Whereas what you've just said is that um, I- increasingly good leaders are asking risky questions mm-hmm. in public format mm-hmm. so that they open it up to everybody that's in the room, because they're usually pretty smart people assembled in that room, right. to get their input, to say that collectively we we don't know, so how do we find out? And here's the leader, I think.
1: Part of going back to your vision is saying, if
0: we can find out, here's the return. Sure, it. here's but it's
1: the usually keys. politically incorrect, right? I mean, that's the okay. point, Peter. For me, is that you asked about the characteristics of leadership. I guess one of them is to be willing to ask the politically incorrect questions. Okay, you know. So in the health sector, for instance, people are starting to say things like, "Do we need to revisit the Canada Health Act?" Nobody would have asked that 20 years ago. Right. Liberals are asking it now, right? I mean, people are asking these questions it's because they're realizing that only by asking those questions are we going to get the true meaningful answers about and we and we may get the, the answer that no we don't want to revisit it those are the questions we need to be looking at uh, you know is the is, would the health sector be run equally well or better in Canada as a business as opposed to a moral obligation of the government and we don't know we don't know we have this arrogance and the sense that we know without the evidence that it oughtn't to be. But I guess that's the tension between evidence and other t- forms of knowledge uh, and at the presentation yesterday, which was very interesting because Alan Hudson created this diagram where he was showing on the left side of the of the, of the diagram the processes that lead to decisions from the evidence. But then on the right hand side of the diagram he had all of the processes that lead to decisions that are political. And as they came together he made the argument that there's this spectrum, right? Some decisions are made that are purely political. An MRI machine goes into the riding of Jonquière because it's a swing riding. Government wants to secure those votes. That's where the MRI goes. Purely politically driven decision. On the left-hand side would be a purely health-economical-based algorithm. These are the places in Canada where the MRI machines should go. His argument is MRI machines are not placed according to either of those pure models. They're hybrids of the two. And that the real leader is the person who's able to figure out where on that spectrum a decision should be made. Balancing formal evidence-based types of knowledge with other inputs into the process. And his point was, we don't have many leaders in the Canadian health sector who are willing or comfortable to do that.
0: So what kind of culture, you talk about culture change, what would kind of culture would grow more leaders
1: that would be willing to do that? I think we need to stop reifying knowledge. I think we have to stop thinking that research-based evidence provides us with a type of knowledge that trumps others you know, a systematic review only tells you that this is what the current research says. It doesn't tell you what is. That's a huge difference. The current research is only a fundamental reflection of what current researchers have asked or past researchers have asked. But that's not a function of what is or what ought to be. In the health sector particularly we get into decisions that are not necessarily about what is but what ought to be. And sometimes what ought to be factors in much more than you know, the CHEO examples, my cl- I use it every time I speak about this issue, right? Do we shut down the pediatric cardiac care unit in Ottawa? The answer was no. It fl- it flew in the face of the research evidence, and I think it was a wise decision. I mean, I think the government made the right decision by rejecting the research evidence. But we can't call that a non-evidence-based decision. And that I guess that's the cultural shift that we need. That was an evidence-based decision. It just wasn't an evidence-dictated decision.
0: <laughs> but that's, that's actually a really important point, is that... There are other forms of there's other forms of knowledge,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: evidence seems to be something that people are comfortable with because of the certainty related to it. Right. But what you're saying is that the certainty is narrow. It's only around the things that we currently have asked questions about, that we've written about, yeah, that we've exactly. collected. We've collected. So there's there's in fact much more knowledge than shows up in terms of evidence, oh, and, and uh, that we we risk we're risking th- something.
1: Oh, and we we have this crazy idea that research is unbiased. I mean, that's, you know, as a sociologist, you know, my my fundamental academic training is on questioning all kinds of knowledge and on questioning research knowledge, particularly. I mean, what a
0: culture of lifelong learning does, uh, says, is that everybody knows something. And so, how do we learn from one another, and how do we support that well, ongoing learning? And it's
1: about deep privileging, de- privileging those that have been historically privileged. So
0: how do you do that? Because that's fundamentally a question of power. Well,
1: and so how share that we all benefit? It's funny; certain disciplines are better than others. My father, my father, seventy-two, as I said, no formal education beyond I think the first year of university. He started university and ended up working be- for financial reasons. Worked in the private sector for many, many years. Ended up working at a, as vice president of a major chain of hardware stores. Anyway, when he was 65, he spent five years teaching at Concordia University in the School of Business. I mean, this is a man who didn't have a bachelor's degree. But the School of Business at Concordia said, wait a minute, this is a man who's got a ton of, who embodies a ton of tacit knowledge. i got to tell you that it's very rare that you would find an academic discipline that would hire a professor and give professor status to someone without a bachelor's degree. They got it. But most don't. So who knows more, for instance, about deviants? Uh, A drug addict who's lived on the street for 10 years or someone with a PhD in criminology? Deprivileging those with, with, with certain types of credentials I think is absolutely critical to this process of lifelong learning. My father was able to transfer 55 years of private sector experience running a retail chain to students had we just gone by the normal academic model of PhD plus publications and tenure equals a faculty position, right? Uh, those students would not have had access to his knowledge. So that, I mean, that's what lifelong learning is for me.
0: Well that's interesting because what, what I hear and what you're saying is that, there w- that, the, that the university recognized a great value in the experience of your father and further value in the exchange between your father and students that that would allow them to further go out into the world and create more value. Let's talk about value Mm -hmm. and how do you create value through learning and and knowledge exchange and knowledge transfer. Because I think that there's been an underestimation of the value process, the value propositions. that um, Because we can't count it. Right. So how do we move (laughs) beyond? You talk about the reification of, of academic knowledge, and I think we fetishize things
1: that we can count. So
0: how do you you move beyond that, especially if we want a culture? Because a culture is a very difficult thing to count.
1: Well, so is leadership, and that's why leadership suffers. That's why leadership suffers. We're really good at pumping out of our universities people with really high grades and high levels of intellect and formal knowledge and the ability to regurgitate things that they've read and they've studied for. Uh, But leadership suffers because we can't count it. There's no scale. I can't attach some instrument to your body and have it spit out a coefficient that tells me how good a leader you are. So that's why it suffers, right? So what are the in the work that you do
0: now, right? Which is a really, you know, is an interesting kind of position and you told me that the, you know, in a previous discussion that we had that the the full value of your organization and the fact and the people that it represents was not being realized and yeah. you were helping to change that. Mm-hmm. And so what are the most valuable relationships that you have now? And when you don't have what you need, where do you go?
1: Oh, that's, that's a really interesting question. Well, in my life, uh, and this is other, you know, where do I go? I go to people with whom I've had a meal with. I mean, it sounds so ridiculous, but I don't trust anyone I haven't had a meal with. <laughs> and so, you know, in my process of working here and in my process of building relationships between members of our organization and other stakeholder organizations, you know, I sit down and have a meal with people. It sounds ridiculous. So you're saying, saying that dinner is a form of knowledge transfer? Oh, I've always said that. (laughs) At, at, At Canadian Health Services Research Foundation, one of the earliest battles I had when I started there was dealing with university departments who refused to allow catering expenses on research grants. Even... Research grants that had significant knowledge transfer portions, and I used to phone the the, the the universities and say, "Look, it's actually a requirement of our researchers that they do this stuff." Okay, this but relationship building is critical, and you need you need the grease that, that that lubricates those relationships, and that's usually an informal setting, some type of food process. I mean, we. And we know this. The literature actually demonstrates that there, it's The irony is that there's research that shows this, that people are much more likely to listen to what you have to say and to be open to your opinion and ideas during the various points in a social interaction. It's usually, I believe it's in the first third of a meal, but I'd have to go back and consult the research. But I do know it's expressed in terms of a meal. Well, that's really interesting <laughs> because, I mean, what, what I've
0: heard is that some of, the, some of the real basics of knowledge exchange and knowledge transfer are things that, as, as humans, we already
1: do. Absolutely. We but do really well. You know, Peter, what it is, what is new, is acknowledging that these are important processes. And so, as humans, we actually know how to interact quite well. Right? Every kid knows, kid, every 15-year-old child knows, or 16-year-old child knows, you don't ask your dad if he can have a, the car before he's had his cup of coffee. So why is it that we think the best way to influence a decision-maker in the health system is to go into their office at 3 o'clock when they're trying to end their day and they're tired and they've had a long day and they're three hours from lunch from when they've had their last meal, and we think that that's the best time to go in and tell them, this is where you need to put your MRI machine. And it's ridiculous, right? The best place to do that is over some social encounter where you say, look, you know, I, have some, I have some information I've gathered in my research that, that might help you in this whole MRI you know, decision.
0: That's where the window is. But I think one of the challenges that people will run into, and it goes back to our question of, around power, is some people have access to decision-makers and other people don't have access. Absolutely. And so uh, Absolutely. How, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that imbalance? That well, some opinions get heard and some opinions don't.
1: I, well, I, I mean, how do you deal with it? You, the first step is to you, you acknowledge it and you accept it. I mean, we're not going to change that. Right. That is why we have lobbyists. That is why we have associations and organizations whose sole mandate is to influence public policy. We're not going to get around that. That's just the way it is.
0: So where does the evidence fit within that? I mean, one of the, the, the criticisms of the face-to-face, the lobbying, whatnot, is that it's, uh, it's opinion-driven.
1: Yeah, but again, if you take Alan Hudson's point, if you want to influence a decision, you need to be you need to be hitting it from both sides. Okay. I do not believe in purely so. You know, when I when I say, and again, I'm overstating this for the sake of of making my point, right? I mean, I don't just take people for dinner all the time, but at the end of the day, there's got to be some evidence or research base or knowledge base that's credible for me to put forward. I'm not just there to say I think, no one cares what I think. So what you're saying is that it's not one way or another it way. It has to be both. both. It has to be both. So I there's don't multiple think, sets. I think, multiple that's sets. right. Those of us who try to use the research as a self, as, as an obvious item that ought to be incorporated in, you know, without using those other factors and understanding the other types of evidence that go into the equation will never succeed. And those of us who try to do advocacy work or, or, or influence the public p- public policy using only ideological arguments are also never going to win so it's got to be balancing the two and that's what knowledge transfer is about right
0: let's uh, draw upon your vision and think ten years into the future
1: where do you see knowledge exchange knowledge transfer that whole the field it will be gone being, it will be gone it will be gone and we will all be smiling saying isn't that funny that it took us twenty years to recognize the importance of what humans have known forever right I, I really really believe that I, you know it this is not. You know, I, I'm reminded of Andy Hargadon, who's based at UC Davis, and you know his book, "How Innovation Happens," I believe is the title of the book. And his premise is, his thesis is that there are no new ideas. There's no invention anymore. There's just the recombination of things that we know from other contexts. Knowledge transfer is no different. Nothing has been created here. We've just realized, gee, you know, this thing that we know intrinsically also works here. And so in 20, in 10 years, my hope is that we will have moved way beyond
0: that we won't call it in the business world for instance, we won't call it knowledge management. we'll just call it ma- management. yeah yeah exactly and, and it be just, and it's, part okay. it's part of the
1: process part of the process exactly And I think that's what's happening in the health sector with these new MBA executive MBA programs and the linkages between academic disciplines. People are realizing that you know in the administration and the running of our health sector, there's a role for research, and there's a role for public opinion, and there's a role for all of those factors, and it all goes together. And I think that we won't consider good managers within our health system unless they're people who, who do all of these things okay. together and consult the research as a matter of course.
0: And do you think that this is a society-wide movement? Would you say no? The same I thing don't. About education. Where? No, no, where no, are no. some of the more no. risky areas? No, where I this mean, is that, not happening?
1: See that, and that's the important thing, Peter, is that you know I'm I've been in the health sector for a decade, and I'm only now starting to look outside out of my own interests. And and we're not we haven't caught up. I mean criminal justice is, is the example that I use a lot now because I have a criminology degree and I can tell you that that our North American well, it's probably a global phenomenon, but at least our North American vision of crime and justice is completely devoid of any research based evidence. I mean, ahead of the curve, um, the environment is another fantastic example and in fact I'm speaking at a conference on knowledge brokering for the environment. And 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 that, you know, my talk will be talking about that. I mean, there's there's an enormous body of knowledge that hasn't made its way into public policy, and it it isn't because of the lack of research. I mean, this is the this is this is this is a great case because it makes my argument. There's no dearth of research. The scientific community knows, but there's been no, what I call knowledge transfer going on. So, so and it's been because of those. So, what we need to do, for instance, as a society, is look at the successes of KT in the health sector. And start moving those into the environment discourse, then I guarantee you, we'll see success. Okay. So the,
0: maybe that's where the future lies: is is the is looking at the areas that are underserved and helping and helping to grow it here. So that what you just said about vision, about leadership, about multiple ways of bringing this together, and about basic human relationships happens in in all sectors that affect us.
1: Absolutely. And if I, you know, and, and I guess I find it somewhat frustrating to see our country spend millions of dollars in the name of knowledge transfer within our health system which is a system that is globally one of the best it's not a broken system it has some squeaks but i look at areas like the environment and realize that this is a pending global catastrophe right public policy needs the investments in the processes such as kt processes we're not making those investments
0: what would it take To make those investments.
1: Well, uh, this is not meant to sound egomaniacal, but someone like me moving sectors. That's what it takes. It takes leaders leaders who've sort of mastered this discourse and can point to success stories within a field like health to say, you know what, I'm going to move into another sector now and try to bring these messages to another sector. That's what it takes because someone has to shake it up there. But there needs to be somebody championing non-threatening the creation of neutral spaces for the exchange of knowledge and information, which okay. is what KT is all about, okay. and KE. Well,
0: I think that's actually a pretty good place to, to, to close. Is there anything that I that we haven't discussed that you would like,
1: final words? Oh, Peter, I have no add? idea what we've discussed. All this right. has been the most non-linear conversation about KT I've ever engaged in. It's probably the most interesting as well. No, I, I mean, I think, I think we've probably hit it all.
0: Good. Well, thanks.